stumbles along the way. Um, Rich and I have been friends for quite a long time now, um, but I'll just do a short bio for people who don't know who he is. Um, Rich uh, left South Africa during his student years in the 70s as a conscientious object objector against the racist apartheid state and completed a master's degree at, um, in Canada, in Queen's University, Canada, which examined the role of Cecil Rhodes in the development of a se segregated society on the Cape. And his subsequent PhD at Queen's examined black worker resistance to colonial power in Rhodesia. While working as a civil servant in the UK and for OECD in Paris, he continues to write history, which combines his love of cricket with his established interest in the resistance to colonialism in Africa. And his work has been shortlisted twice for the Cricket Society MCC Book of the Year Award. Um, the first occasion was in 2010 when he co-wrote Empire and Cricket, the South Africa Experience, which told the story of the early years of cricket in Africa. And uh, I had a chapter in that book, and that's how Rich and I first met and became friends. It turned out that we actually played for the same cricket team, but I played on Wednesdays and Rich played on Sundays. So <laughs> it was a, quite a coincidence. It was a strange, uh, strange coincidence. Um, that, that volume took the history of the South African cricket up until 1914. Um, and then another volume was published which took the history of South African cricket from 1914 to the boycott of South Africa by World Cricket. More recently, he was shortlisted for the, for the prize in 2021, so just last year, together with John C. Winch, for his biography of Crom Hendricks, Two Black to Wear Whites, and I'm sure we'll mention Crom Hendricks during this discussion. And if you haven't read that book, it's an excellent book, a really, really interesting book about somebody who's pretty much forgotten as a cricketing hero in South Africa, and John T. and Rich really recovered his reputation. But today he's here to talk about his latest work, co-authored with the eminent South African cricketer and writer Andre Odendahl, um, which is called Swallows and Hawk, English Cricket Tours, the MCC, and the Making of South Africa, 1868 to 1968. And I had the pleasure of uh, reviewing that book, or this, this book, as is on the table here, um, for the journal um, in the last issue, and um, I really enjoyed reading it, so it was a pleasure to review it, really. Sometimes books are not easy to review because they're not easy to finish, but this one was easy to finish. Um, so I'll start the discussion. So first of all, yeah, my <coughs> congratulations on the book, Rich. Um, it's great work of scholarship, but um, an enjoyable read, as I said. Um, and one of the great sections of the book is the closing chapter on the tour that never was in 1968, in which you have fresh evidence on the Dolorera affair, and I think I mentioned in the review that it's hard to believe that anything new could be written about the Dolorera affair, which is possibly the most written about subject in cricket, certainly in recent years. But first I want to ask you how this book came about, because it's a real mixture of cricket history and political and social history, but it's also something of a travelogue as well. I learned a lot about South Africa from this book. So how did it come, come to fruition? Right, thank you very much, Jeff. I, I hope everybody can hear me at the back. Um, first of all, thank you to the Cricket Society for, for the honour of, of inviting me to speak. Um, you are the people who really get cricket and what, why cricket is so significant, uh, both for its own sake and, of course, in, in the world as a whole. And it's a great, a great opportunity to, uh, to talk with you all. Uh, just to say a, a word before I start and talk about how the book actually came about, about my co-author. 
uh, Andre Woodendahl, who sadly is on a beach in Cape Town at the moment. <laughs> um, he's, a, uh, he's a Cambridge Blue. Uh, he's the first white cricketer to join SACBOC, uh, the non-racial uh, cricket organisation which was set up in South Africa in the 1970s. Uh, he's a historian of African resistance uh, and the current, the current South African constitution. He's just finished a, a magisterial work uh, on, on the development of the South African Constitution, working with Albie Sachs, who was a, a noted lawyer in the 1970s. Um, he's producing the definitive non-racial history of South African cricket, and he's the leader of, of what is really a transformation movement across Southern African history, an attempt to move away from the uh, apartheid past and rewrite history from a perspective which reflects the reality of the population as a whole. So taking on board what was said earlier during the discussion of the AGM, which I was very interested in, uh, I hope this will be controversial enough for you. <laughs> um, the book itself grew out of a conversation with Andre uh, about external cricketing perspectives on South Africa. He was writing his, his series on South African cricket itself, but he wasn't really looking at how this was being viewed from outside South Africa and what was happening to people who were coming to South Africa and looking at this and what role was being played by them. Um, so we, I, I had a think about this with him and, and we, we thought that what was really needed was a book which looked at and cast essentially a light on the English cricket tours which came to South Africa over the course of the period from 1888, which was the first tour, through to 1968, which, as, as Jeff has just said, was a tour that never was, the tour that should have been uh, but wasn't. And we will, get to, we will get to that last tour. And what, what, we've, what we have discovered that's new about that tour, what new evidence there has been about that. Um, so just a word or two about the book itself. Uh, first of all, uh, it's, it's summer swallows, and that re relates, the swallows relate, of course, directly to the migratory habits of English cricket tourists to South Africa. Uh, and there are 15 tours in this period, uh, 14 men's tours, one women's tour in 1960 61, uh, and one tour that never was, as I suggested. The cricket takes centre stage in the context of this book, but it's written in, in, in the, the overall shape of the evolution of the South African system and, and the South African apartheid operation. And what it is an attempt to look at how segregation, first of all, was instituted, how it became apartheid, and what the consequences were for the, uh, the population of, of South Africa as a whole. But it's not just a political book. It's a book which is essentially about cricket. And it's about 75 years of really compelling cricket. Uh, it's about heroism, heroism on the field, tragedy and farce off it. Um, before, uh, before 1900, we had essentially a series of exhibition games. Of, uh, we had four cricket tours uh, where cricketers came, essentially, essentially showed the locals how the game should have been played. Didn't always go their way but they did win all the 11 aside matches that they played. Uh, the second period was the period between 1905 and 1913, where there were 15 matches, which were, uh, which were considered to be tests. All of these were considered to be tests, mainly retrospectively. Uh, and we ended up with a 7-7 match with, with one draw. They were all extremely tightly fought series. But South Africa, uh, thanks to the googly bowlers and a number of other uh, 
particular conditions relating to uh, extremely strong batting, uh, matting wickets and, and other local conditions uh, certainly played above themselves. Then we had a period between after the First World War between 1922 and 1965 when the, the bulk of, of these series took place. We had eight series then uh, and at the end of the, at, at the beginning of the last test of each of these series they were undecided. So we had no dead rubbers in this entire period, which demonstrates just how close and how compelling the cricket actually was. And in fact, in all of those tests, they went down to, uh, they went down to the last day in which play could have taken place, including the timeless test, of course, which might still be going on if the ship hadn't had to sail. Um, so by comparison, and let me give you a little comparison on this, the, the, the Ashes series, which everybody makes so much of, and we're where millions of words are, are, are spilt on. Uh, in those series, during the same period, uh, they were dead rubbers. They were, in other words, games which were played but would make no difference to the result of the, uh, of the series in, uh, in seven out of ten series, five of which were won by Australia. Now, you have to wonder why it is the Ashes get the kinds of publicity that they have got with regard to cricket, if you're really interested in exciting and compelling cricket. So that's the first reason for this book. The second reason was that in the games that were concluded, and there were many of those, there were, there were a rather large number of astonishing finishes. Uh, one a victory when 45 runs were needed for the last wicket. Um, another when uh, one by one wicket on the last ball. Uh, and another, again, one by one wicket. Now, you may know, in fact, I'm sure most of you do, that there were only seven, sorry, six games in the, in the period between 1877 and 1977 in which, uh, which test matches were won by one wicket. So that's a pretty good record for what's going on in the, the South African context. So we also have, within this cricket, we have some of the most astonishing personal duels between individual players, matchups, I guess they would call them now, if you were commentating on the uh, on, on T T Twenty cricket, um, but basically duels between individuals. The the everybody knows, of course, about the duel between uh, between Taylor and Barnes, and the extent of that duel. The fact that Taylor takes, as we know, forty nine wickets. He takes them in four tests. Doesn't play in the last test because. Uh, there are a lot of arguments about what it might have been, but, but essentially because the manager had refused to allow him to take a collection every time he took seven or eight wickets, which happened quite often. And so he just said, well, I'm just not going to play. In fact, Barnes's relationship with the tour was very interesting in itself. He seldom travelled with the England cricket team. He often travelled with the South Africans. Uh, he was there with his wife. He, left, uh, he arrived late, left early, and in fact he had almost no engagement with the MCC, apart from when he was actually on the pitch. And then, of course, he won the game for them. Um, and maybe that's what you want. <laughs> the, um, then, and I think here we come to the political dimension of this. And once again, I think it's really important to see South African cricket in its political dimension, because in the end, everything that happens in South Africa is political. If you, if you have a system which is based on segregation or racial segregation and apartheid, everything is political. Who gets on the pitch, who, how they play, when they play, where, all of those decisions are political decisions. It's not just a question of 11 players turning up to play another 11. So I make no, I make no apologies. For, for talking about this in a, in a political way. Um, 
the, uh, the essentially, the essence of this is that the South African establishment and the MCC establishment, of course, I know that the MCC uh, uh, only began uh, operating tours after, uh, after 1900, um, but the South African establishment and the, the English establishment, if you like, had a, had a joint mantra around the notion of mines, empire, and cricket. Uh, the story of, of, of how and why the MCC supported the South African regime uh, from Rhodes, uh, Cecil Rhodes, in the eight, early 1890s, all the way through to John Forster, um, and, and in 19, well, until the final, the final end in, in 1970. Um, the story of why that happened is a crucial story, and it informs fundamentally what's going on, not only politically in both England and in uh, um, the UK, if you like, and, and South Africa, but it's about what goes on on the field as well. And I think that's a... You can't understand South African cricket without understanding South African politics from this point of view. And it's also arguable that English cricket needs to be understood by reference to its imperial past and what goes on outside the UK. And too often the UK tends to look at, at its cricket history from what happens within the UK. Um, in, in finally, it's about a, a trajectory as well. Of, it's a trajectory of, of black players and the exclusion of black players. From Crom Hendricks, who played uh, against the MCC professionals, sorry, not the MCC, the English professionals in 1892, uh, who was excluded from, from touring England in 1894, directly, specifically by Cecil Rhodes and his private secretary, William Milton, who was also happened to be captain of the South African team. Uh, and all the way through to Dolavira, there is an arc of players who were excluded, isolated, and kept out of the South African game. It's a tragedy for them, massive tragedy, uh, uh, but it's a tragedy for, for South Africa too. And that story need, needs to be told. And that story has partly been told in, in Andre Urendahl's book on South African cricket. So, yeah. I hope that gives you a general, a general rundown <laughs> on where, where Quite I'm Quite an opening statement, and, uh, but one of the things that really comes through in the book is the way that you integrate that political history, which you've talked about very well there, and the cricket history, but also the colourfulness of, of these tours. They're interesting. I, I was just continually reading the early tours especially. They're so gruelling. They go thousands of miles, <coughs> these men. Um, at one point, you describe the itinerary of a tour as resembling the gyrations of a drunken and directionally challenged spider, because there was no logic to, to where they went on these tours, was there? Can you go into the logistical difficulties involved in the early days and what implications that had for the tourists? Because I've toured in Suffolk and Essex, and that was bad enough. You know? <laughs> well, it is bad enough. Yeah. Yeah, I've done that too, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, that, that's absolutely right. I mean... The point about these about these cricket tours, and certainly in, in the uh, in the period before the uh, before the Anglo-Boer War, um, the first four of them anyway, and and beyond uh, beyond that as well, is that they're not really about uh, the MCC, as it, which arranges them from 1905-6 onwards, and then the the private entrepreneurs who set them up in the earlier period are not looking about are looking at the geography of South Africa and how to get from one place to another. And that's partly because there isn't a great deal of knowledge or understanding about what South Africa is actually like. It's a really difficult place to get around it, as I'm sure many of you who will have been there know that it's not a... a there, there are a series of mountain ranges. Uh, some of them are pretty high. Um, they are, there are 
a, a number of obstacles which make it make travel difficult. In I mean, cricket tours have always, certainly at the beginning, struggled with this particular problem of basic logistics, of getting from one place to another. And we would all remember Parr's tour, the first one in 1859, uh, to, to North America, uh, which almost ended cricket tours before they began, when, when, the, when the ship uh, broke a jib in, in the North Atlantic in the storms in early November, crazy time to be travelling in the North Atlantic, and they almost all went down. In fact, some of the players thought they were... They were, they were gone. Uh, however, they got through that. 30 years later, in 1886, 1880, um, sorry, yes, 1886-7, there was a double England tour of, uh, of Australia. We'd had a number of, as we know, tours of Australia. Uh, here there was a double England tour. We had two sides independently in, invited by Melbourne and by Sydney. And it, it was a disaster. It was a financial disaster. It was a disaster for as far as everybody was concerned. And uh, at, at that point, uh, it was basically believed that this was the end of cricket tours. We simply couldn't, couldn't run cricket tours from the UK any longer because, essentially, cricket tours had a fundamental problem. They were either too strong and they thrashed the locals and the locals didn't want to come and watch and certainly didn't want to pay to watch themselves be thrashed, or they weren't good enough, in which case, why do they bother at all? And this was a fundamental problem around the whole question of, of different, differing standards and approaches to the game. And there were different cultural approaches, as, as, we, all, as we all know. So what happened? In 1886, gold was discovered in South Africa, and suddenly a great new hinterland for cricket tours opened up. And there was no coincidence between those two things happening. Uh, so we had, the, with, uh, two years after the discovery of gold, Sir, Sir Aubrey Smith, uh, and his team of 12 uh, arrived in South Africa uh, along under Major Wharton. Uh, they, uh, they formed themselves into a theatrical group on the ship on the way over, into a, uh, a minstrel group, and they blacked up as, 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 as the Garth Castle minstrels. The minstrels were really big in, in, uh, culturally at the time. This wasn't, it might be a little surprising now, but it wasn't surprising at all at the time. Most of the shows in the West End were minstrel shows. It was the, it was the, the only game in town. So the, the, they did this, and not only did they perform on the ship, but once they got to South Africa, they played cricket in the day, and they performed in the evenings in the town hall and whatever. There was, uh, they had a, you can see where Aubrey, Aubrey Smith is, is going with all of this stuff. And of course, he ends up in Hollywood as Sir Aubrey Smith. And no doubt, we've all seen his films at one stage or another. As for the endurance question, which I think you were, you were talking about, I mean, South Africa is a big place too. It doesn't look like it because the Mercator projection on the map doesn't show it's in the right size exactly, but it's a big place. Um, the tour, Smith's tour, did 16,000 miles. Uh, 13,000 of them were by, by steamship. Uh, two and a half thousand were uh, by rail uh, and uh, extremely painful. Uh, 785 miles were in, were in jolting, bouncing Cape carts, two-person carts, without suspension or tyres, through mountain ranges. South Africa is defined by its physicality, and this was a key indicator of this, and they didn't understand what it was they were, having, they were challenged by. So, for example, on that first tour again, um, the, the English tourists arrive in Cape Town, they go up the sea to, uh, up the coast to play a couple of games, lose them both, 
go up the coast to Port Elizabeth, play Port Elizabeth, win that one, uh, with, a, with a, huge, uh, a huge portrait of W.G. Grace in the background. He's already a big star in Port Elizabeth. And, uh, and then come back by sea to Mossel Bay, get in Cape Carts at 10 o'clock at night, uh, are forced to leave their oyster supper uh, to get in these things so they can move, get in the carts and go up through the Montague Pass. Now, if any of you have ever been through the Montague Pass on the Otaniqua Mountains, it's an extremely scary trip, even now. Uh, in a Cape cart with one cart with a light on it, none of the others, <laughs> and a system of bugles from the front to the back so you could tell where people were. They had one hell of a trip. And at, at about eight the following day, just as it, was, as it was getting light, Bobby Abel, who was in the last car and thought he was going to die on several occasions, <laughs> went up to, went to, to Aubrey and Smith and said, look, we cannot do this anymore. Uh, I, I don't mind. Throw me off the side if you want, but I can't wait to die. <laughs> so those were the kinds of conditions that they had to deal with. It was, uh, it, it was extremely difficult. There were impossible rivers. Uh, there's, there's a story of J.J. Ferris, who was being carried by a, a black worker across a, across a river in flood. Uh, Ferris got halfway across on this guy's shoulders, and the guy turned around and said, you know that five shillings I said you, I told you it cost? It's, it's, it's ten shillings now, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> so, so times were tough. These, these, were, these were difficult things. But the tours were basically oriented around three different things, in the, certainly in the early period. Diamonds in Kimberley, which had been discovered in 1869, and with Cecil Rhodes basically owned Kimberley, by, by, but certainly by the 1880s. Um, gold in uh, Johannesburg, or the Witwatersrand, which, uh, which is where everybody wanted to get to, because that's where the opportunities were. And, and uh, within, with, within days of, uh, of the t- arrival of this team, uh, in Johannesburg, uh, Aubrey Smith and, and Monty Barden, his vice captain, who became England's youngest captain, uh, had already signed up and passed the stockbroker exams, and they were already well integrated into Johannesburg. This is where the money, this is where the money was. And the third, the third area, and why this whole travel thing becomes really arduous, is they have to travel around the Great Karoo, which is a semi-desert area. And the reason they have to travel in the Great Karoo is, and, they, and play several games against 22s from small villages and whatever, because this was ostrich farming territory. And ostrich, ostrich farmers were, at that stage, or ostrich feathers at that stage, were m- worth more than the weight of, of the same amount of, of weight in gold. Ostrich feathers were the only thing going. And if, if, you, were a, if you were a woman, in the UK or almost anywhere else in, in so-called civilised society, you could not go out without an ostrich feather in your bonnet. It was crucial. And it went on until about, till, till just about the First World War. So ostrich feathers drove the kind of, the kind of difficulties and the kind of itinerary that you, you're talking about. Yeah, um, I mean, we, you mentioned Hendrix, so we'll move on from Hendrix, if that's OK, because um, previous book... Uh, but you were talking about astonishing matches, and really the first astonishing match that you have in the book is the first win for South Africa, isn't it, in 1906, um, just after New Year 1906, I believe. Um, it's a match I've written about because I wrote a small piece on Percy Sherwell, who was the captain, who plays a very significant role. Can you describe that match for us, and, but also the impact it had on world cricket, because it had a, a 
big reverberation beyond South Africa, didn't it? Yeah, sure. Yes, it certainly did. Uh, the, the match itself, just to give it a little bit of context, it was uh, uh, South Africa had lost every test in, up to uh, 1899, uh, to, mainly because the, the touring sides had all brought one key bowler. They brought a bowler who ran through everybody else. We had Johnny Briggs in, uh, in the first tour. Uh, we, had, we had JJ Ferris. Uh, we had George Lohman, who everybody knows about and whose figures are legendary. Uh, and we had Albert Trott. And those four tours were essentially, essentially killed off South Africa in every case because of those, those individuals. Um, the, the, then they played against, uh, South Africa played against Australia in 1902 uh, and, uh, and did reasonably well, but without, without winning. And Trumper was, uh, Trumper was playing for Australia at the time. So 1905, 1906, uh, they'd been to, the South African team had been to the UK in 1904. They hadn't played any tests. South Africa had not played any tests outside Africa. South Africa, or anything like it that was considered to be like, anything like a test match. Uh, so when they played in, they played in England, uh, and they developed what was just beginning to be the googly bowlers, the googly bowler attack, led by uh, Reggie Schwartz, uh, Reggie Schwartz, uh, sorry, yeah, led, led by Reggie Schwartz, who initially picked it up from Bozenkay, who played for Middlesex under Warner's captaincy, and he'd, and he'd won the Ashes, essentially. In Australia, bowling the bowling the googly, um, Reggie Schwartz had Reggie Schwartz had learnt it, and he taught it to the other South African bowlers. Uh, Reggie Schwartz, of course, was English, but he was brought into South Africa uh, with a couple of weeks' notice to play for South Africa. It was a uh, it was something that, that A. Bailey had done, who was in charge, essentially the CEO of South, Af- South African cricket. Um, so, so at the time of the, the test, the first test in 1905-1906, South Africa were on a bit of a hiding to nothing. It was, as far as they were concerned, um, they'd lost everything that had happened so far. England were bound to be too good. Plum Warner's team were bound to be too good. Um, but it turned out that that was, not, that was not the case at all. And part of it wasn't, the reason it wasn't the case was that the, the, the England were really concerned about how to deal with googly bowlers bowling on matting wickets, particularly in the, the Transvaal. You, you had mat laid on gravel, stretched pretty tight, uh, and you got incredible bounce. It was like it was like bowling at Perth, only more so. I mean, there was there was massive amounts of bounce and grip and turn. And Schwartz, uh, Faulkner, Vogler, and Gordon White were a quartet of bowlers who bowled googlies, who, in the first test at least, took on uh, and, and demonstrated that that there was indeed some potential to this kind of bowling, because there was some doubt about this, and there were lots of critics who said that, uh, who called it, who, who ridiculed it and, and said the whole notion of googly bowling is, is worse than log bowling, you know, you're, it's completely not part of proper cricket. So in, in, that, in that match, uh, in that match uh, first of all, England, uh, England made 184 uh, in the first innings. South Africa uh, struggled badly with a bat, uh, Dave Norse made, uh, made 40 yard and dragged them up to 91, but they were a long way behind and looking as everybody thought like, uh, like that was going to be the end of things. Warner then made his only 50 of the series. He had terrible trouble with the googly bowlers other than that and indeed with the seamers as well. Um, and the MCC ended up 283 runs ahead. And that in these circumstances is a, an absolute winning score. There was no way that South, anybody thought South Africa were going to chase that. 
Um, lots of betting going on, but nobody was seriously nobody seriously thought that was uh, that was going to happen. South Africa steadily lost wickets, chasing 283. Uh, by um, when Faulkner went, they were 105 for six. Uh, they're 178 behind, four wickets in hand. And then White and North, uh, Gordon White, who also was a, who was an all-round and ex- extremely good, uh, extremely good uh, batsman, um, put on a hundred, put on 120, and dragged this back to, uh, to, to if not parity, at least to where there was a glint of hope. Um, however, White went. Ralph took, got him with a bale trimmer. Uh, and uh, and Vogler and Schwartz went quickly after that. They were 239 for nine, needed 45. In walks Percy Sherwell. Percy Sherwell, as you well know, is, uh, well, first of all, he's South Africa's tennis singles champion, so he's got, got a bit of hand-eye coordination. He's also the wicketkeeper, uh, and he's had a dreadful test. He's, he's, he's dropped catches, he's let... He's let 24 buys go through. The, the googly bowlers were too good for him as much as too good for the batsman um, on, that, on that wondrous pitch. And, he'd had a ter- and his, his captaincy decisions were poor. His batting order wasn't great and, he, and his field placings and all the rest. But he just hadn't got it together. It was his first test match. And he was, the, uh, and he'd been, he was ca- captaining in his first game. He came, sauntered out to the wicket uh, and uh, with 45 to get it, of course, that was the end was likely to be quick. However, quite the reverse. Uh, runs came quickly. Increasingly panicky bowling changes happened. Uh, at one point, uh, Warner even tried to get uh, Jack Crawford to bowl from both ends. <laughs> um, a snook bisected the two slips. Neither moved. Uh, three went into the leg side, and it should you know the usual story. We've all been there. We all know when things start turning against you, when cricket turns against you, it's a cruel and harsh game. <laughs> and uh, so, so slowly, slowly, the, this 45 came down until um, a, uh, a, a, a clip by, Norse into the, by Dave Norse into the leg side brought the scores level. The next ball, uh, the, the ball, Norse played the ball in, uh, back towards the bowler. There was, a, there was a chance of a run. They half went for a run. They had this one of these yes-no get-back situations in the middle of the pitch. Those nightmares that, again, we've, we've all seen. And then, but they narrowly avoided uh, absolute disaster. And two balls later, Albert Ralph bowled full toss uh, and, and Sherwell hammered it to, towards the mid-wicket fence. It never got there because the crowd swarmed onto the pitch. And South Africa had won by, by one wicket in this amazing way. Um, old Dave Norse, he wasn't that old, but he was still, he was always known as Old Dave Norse. He was chaired off. Uh, he walked up the pavilion steps and there were people waiting for him on the steps and at every step somebody pressed a sovereign into his hand and he got to the top and he was trying to figure out how he could come back again and go up again (laughs) (laughs) but he played he played 45 consecutive tests after that uh, and uh, until 1924 uh, and made made 50 against Tiger O'Reilly and the Aussies in 1935-6 at the age of 57. So he, longevity was his thing. Uh, he was a soldier. He, he did he played the big drum in the uh, the NLI, the Tel Light Infantry, uh, and a railwayman, billiard marker, saloon keeper, etc., etc. And he was also father of Dudley Norse, who we, we all know we all know plenty about. So that was the uh, that was that big test match. And that then 
uh, South Africa won the next one and the next. Uh, the fourth one was lost. They got overconfident, but they won the last one as well. So they won 4-1. What was the significance of this? Well, clearly, the significance of this was that South Africa had beaten England, were on a level playing field with England and Australia, of course. And therefore, it was possible, potentially, to, for an organisation to be set up where these three cricket teams all had an equal opportunity to play each other, and, and we ended up with, uh, with the ICC being formed. Now, the important components of this were, were essentially two people. Lord Harris, who we all know about, except that what you might not know about Lord Harris, was that he was chairman of Consolidated Goldfields in South Africa. So he was responsible for the mining industry and responsible for labour on the mining industry. And indeed, he, he is engaged uh, heavily in making sure that labour, which is always the big problem in South Africa, uh, was, was available. Um, the other side of that was the, was the CEO of Consgold, the guy who, who did the day-to-day -day running, who happened to be Abe Bailey, who was also the CEO of South African Cricket. So between them, they brought, they brought this together, brought South Africa into a group, an ICC with Australia. And that changed cricket fundamentally. Uh, you had a three, three people at the table, and you had three people at the table all the way through to the 1920s. Mm. Uh, and indeed, we still, have, we still have something similar developing now with the new Future Tours program. Yeah. Um, I'm going to move on to the 30s now. There's a lot of cricket going on, obviously, between the two teams in the 20s. But people in the room I could see recognised uh, the timeless test, so-called timeless test, um, in 1938 in Durban. Um, can you tell us something about the timeless test and why you think it actually wasn't a timeless test? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not even sure whether, I'm not even sure whether I do. I'm not sure whether it was a timeless test or not. Yeah, I think it's there's a line in the book where yeah. you say, oh, it's a timeless test, but it's not a timeless test. Well, yes. They, it's, could, have, it's a they could have played it to it, the finish it, if they wanted to. I, I think if yeah. you're an aficionado of Samuel Beckett, you can't yeah. get what's meant by a timeless test in yeah. this context. What happened was, of course, uh, timeless tests were not unusual. In Australia, they were pretty standard practice for the last test of a series if a, if a, if a test, if a, a result hadn't been reached already. So the final test was like a decider. You played it to a finish. That, was the, that, that wasn't done in South Africa. And in fact, in most cases in Australia, it either didn't come to that, or if it did come to that, it finished in three or four days or whatever. So, no, so it never became an issue. It only became an issue in South Africa in 1938, 1939, 1939, in fact, with Wally Hammond's tour, uh, where the, the fifth test in Durban, uh, Wally Hammond's team were one nil up. Um, there, was the, uh, 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 there was the opportunity for, for South Africa to at least draw the series. So uh, South Africa had played cricket on a variety of different surfaces matting until the early 30s, and then a mixture of matting and turf in the 1930s. And this was the first series on just turf. And so what happened was, given, of course, we remember what happened in, in, uh, with, in, at the Oval uh, in 1938 with Lead Hutton and 903 for seven and, and Hutton's 364 and so on. Um, what were being prepared were, were feather beds, just like that. So South Africa's groundsmen weren't prepared, didn't know how to produce result pitches, and in fact didn't want to risk producing result pitches. So they produced an absolute road for this test match. 
And, of course, everybody knew it was just going to carry on until it was finished. So uh, the details of it are, are far too boring to, to <laughs> go into any detail. But, but allow me to say that when England came in with regard to the, the fourth inning, at the fourth innings, they needed 696 to win. <laughs> Tough target, generally, one would think. Uh, Bass ball it. Just yeah. baseball it in a day. Baseball it, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sadly they, they, they didn't have Baz uh, or anybody similar, um, but they did have Bill Edridge. Now Bill Edridge came into the Test match with a total run scored in the four Tests of the series so far of twenty-one. He was it was early in his Test career. He was clearly a batsman with some promise, but he clearly had no idea how to play against the South African attack or in, indeed in South Africa. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. And he got out very cheaply in the first innings anyway. And, and he, as he, when, he came in, uh, when he came in with, uh, with uh, two wickets down, um, things, were looking, things were looking pretty poor. And, and in fact, uh, Mitchell, who was bowling, was rubbing his hands together because he knew this was a walking wicket, you know, the way you do. You think, aha, I've got this guy. Um, and uh, Mitchell, uh, sorry, so, uh, so Edrich came in. Um, and he, the night before, he'd, he'd spent a long time trying to deal with this particular problem of scoring runs in tests. So he'd given up smoking, he'd cut down on the booze, he'd done whatever else he used to do, he'd cut down on that too. He did his best to behave like a proper cricketer uh, through, you know, for, for a couple of months. And, uh, and it got, got him nowhere, just got him nowhere. And, and he, uh, the night before, Tuppy Owen Smith, he was a doctor in Durban by this stage, he'd played in, in England in 1929, uh, very successfully. Uh, he was a doctor in Durban, had this party at a nightclub, and Bill decided it was time to just let this go, let it go. So he did. So he had a, he had a pretty good night. He, whether he went to bed or not, nobody actually knows, but he came in the next morning, uh, and the second ball that, that Mitchell bowled him, he, he smashed through the covers for four, and he was off. And, Mitch, uh, and, and um, Edrich made 219 in the context of uh, chasing this score. And eventually, England, on the last day, uh, ended, up, ended up needing, uh, needing about 100, 160 to win, with four wickets left, five wickets left. It looked like a no-brainer. It looked like they were going to do it, as, as, uh, as, as I think... Uh, Swanted said later, it was a, uh, it was more certain than any other possible result that they would get this, except of course that rain was in the air, and this was the tenth day now, and uh, and and rain was coming through from Isipingo. Somebody phoned up Swanton, sent a message out to the field, onto the field, and said to Hammond, who was batting at the time, "Look, you guys have got to get a move on. We've got a real problem here. It's going to rain." So they, after after strolling through it for days on end, they finally developed a bit of urgency and you actually got a game of cricket on the last, the tenth day of the game. The rest of it had been a warm-up exercise. But you got a game of cricket on the tenth day, and, uh, but, however, down came the rain, they were 40 runs short, five wickets in hand, they couldn't play the next day, they had to all get on the ship to get back to Cape Town, because at that point shipping was going to be really restricted because the, with the encroaching, uh, encroaching war um, there were all sorts of restrictions on shipping. They had to get on that boat. Hammond, against all the rules, of course, flew back to Cape Town. He wasn't going to bother with going on ships and things. Um, but that was it. That was a timeless test. So, so it, was a, it wasn't a timeless test after all. It actually ended. There was a specific time to it. So all it was was just a, 
just an extremely long test. <laughs> Far too bleeding long for anybody. I mean, they let the crowds in free from day six. I mean, <laughs> Ken Fulyun had two haircuts, you know. I mean, <laughs> so we'll move on to the post-war now. And, and one of the things I really enjoyed about your book was that you have uh, women's cricket in there as well. And... Um, People in the society will know that Raph Nicholson is on the exec and is a historian of women's cricket, but um, she's not the only writer in town on women's cricket. And you, you give full coverage to, to that tour in, uh, in the 1960s, 60-61, I think it is. Yes. So can you tell us about that tour and how it came about and how significant was it for women's cricket in South Africa? Sure, yeah. Uh, yes, I, I mean, it is extremely significant. I mean, women's cricket in South Africa, though, has been significant right, right back from the 1880s. There's a, there's a piece in the, in the Cape Times, in Cape Town, which, which says that, uh, says that, that in, in 1888, saying that women's cricket has become ordinary and we see it all the time. Um, so, so women are playing cricket all the way through this, this, the, the period. In the... Um, by the 1950s, uh, this cricket played in the 30s. There's a, a significant amount of cricket played, but it's not organised at a sort of national level. By the 1950s, they organise it nationally. Uh, so South African team has yet to have been selected, or, or indeed any any idea of a South African team touring anywhere else. But uh, because the, the tournaments are very successful, uh, and say a great deal about the way. Uh, women organised cricket in, in comparison to the way men organised cricket. I mean, they also had a, uh, they had Eric Rowan as as the who was South Africa's uh, rather eccentric uh, batsman who was uh, who was extremely good player but uh, like liable to uh, to make decisions which were were outside the box. Um, he uh, he he got the women to 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 play in a, uh, in, a in a in a different way to the way men play cricket, and in these in this period in the fifties, uh, there was also the creation of the International Women's Cricket Council uh, under uh, under Meta um, uh, Reinberg, uh, and it brought in a number of countries, including South Africa. Uh, and but one of the one of the issues around that was that they were very keen on having white countries playing, and not having black countries playing. So while the West Indies, and India and Pakistan were all playing Test cricket at this stage, they weren't included in the women's uh, the IWCC, uh, and that was a real uh, that was to do with the sensibilities as much of, as anything of South Africa itself and the way yeah, the way Marjorie Robeson, who was a South African representative. Uh, they played a tour in in sixty sixty one. The uh, the England brought a tour. Helen Sharp brought a team. Uh, none of the South Africans had played first class cricket because it wasn't none of their provincial stuff was described as first class. They'd never played an international, so they had no idea what to expect. However, they played, and they had a, a pretty close fought four test series. The the third test was won by uh, was won by England. Uh, Helen Sharp made one hundred and twenty six. Uh, and planted, it was at Kingsmead, and she planted a tree. Uh, and at Kingsmead, anybody who make, makes 100 in a test match plants a tree. started with Phil Mead way back in 1922, uh, and it's, it continues to this day. And she's the only woman to have made a test century at Kingsmead and had the, had the tree planted. Yeah. Um, we've talked a lot about white cricket in South Africa. We mentioned Crom Hendricks. Um, can you just give us a... a because one of the things about the book is that it's, it's about MCC tours, but you 
you balance that with what's happening in black, with, with black cricket in South Africa. Can you give us a picture of how that develops through the century and, and lays the foundations for multiracial cricket as we have it now in South Africa? Yes, it's a, um, it's a big question. Um, black cricket was always a... Uh, and I, when I say always, I'm going back to the 1950s... And, sorry, the 1850s and the 1860s. Was was always a close, connect, closely connected to um, the whole South African engagement of of labour force and the interaction of populations, uh, partly because the the mission schools, which were very significant, particularly in the Eastern Cape, but, but elsewhere as well, uh, tended to tended to encourage uh, their their uh, their pupils to play cricket, and indeed there was a special school called Zonnebloom in Cape Town, where the sons of chiefs were said to play cricket, were said to, to be educated, but also to play cricket. Uh, and the, the Zona Bloom is up in observatory, and you can see across the bay to Robben Island. And one of the uh, one of the, main, the, the best players at Zona Bloom was a guy called Nathaniel Mshala, whose father was on Robben Island as a political prisoner at the time. So that was so cricket and cricket and, and that colonial relationship was important from the start. But when you think about black cricket in South Africa, you have to think about non-white cricket. That's a horrible term. I don't like it um, because it's the way the, it's the way the state used to describe it. But the, uh, the, so you've got essentially a, a coloured community operating mainly in, in Cape Town, some in Port Elizabeth, a little bit in Kimberley and so on. Uh, you've got an Indian community operating mainly out of Durban, all of whom are, are strong cricketing, uh, have strong cricketing traditions, uh, particularly the, the coloured tradition. And then you've got, a, you've got in, in Johannesburg, you've got a, a mining cricket uh, operation. Uh, a, uh, the, the native recruitment Corporation has called, uh, set up a competition for a cricketing competition for the mines, African cricket in the 1930s, which was the golden age through to the 1950s. Uh, it was extremely strong, and you got people like Frank Rojo, uh, who was probably the best batsman in South Africa at the time. Although, of course, we can't tell because there's no way of making these comparisons. But his statistics were pretty, are, are, as far as we know them, are extremely, extremely impressive. So, black cricket operated until the 1950s in, in essentially in silos. I mean, in a big silo, but in their own independent silos as well, until what happened was that a slow movement towards bringing the South African cricket community together began, the, the non-white cricketing community, uh, which began in the 19, uh, 1950s. And by the end of the 1950s, we had uh, a, essentially a, a non-white a non cricket board, uh, which played, which had players from all of these communities, uh, which was based on geographic differences and not racial differences. So that changed. Of course, you still had the problem of the fact that the whites who played establishment cricket wouldn't play against or wouldn't allow them to play against them. And there was no... And you had the Dolavira situation as a, as a result. Yeah, I mean, mentioning the Dolavira situation kind of sets us up for the Q&A, I think, because one of the most interesting things about your book and there's a very strong final section where you go into the, the nuts and bolts of the Dolavira affair um, and I think we'll give people an opportunity to ask you questions about that afterwards because I think it's something that people are familiar with but can you just tell us 
some of the new sources that you investigated? I know that you interviewed people, but also you were able to look at archive that hasn't been used before for that affair. And then maybe we'll round off there, have our break, and then we'll do the Q&A afterwards. Sure. Yes, thanks. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I wouldn't like to claim too much, too much credit for something astonishing or unusual here. Uh, what what happened was I did speak to uh, I, I spoke to two two key key people involved in the process. Uh, one was Doug Insole, of course. Another one was Mike Brearley, who wasn't actually in the room in terms of selecting the team, but he was very significant with regards to what happened subsequent to that, and had been on a the 1964-5 tour as well. Um, but and I also interviewed somebody that Mike Brearley had spoken to, but uh, didn't have a name for who was an MCC member, who talked about what Doug Insole had confessed to him in the year or two before, his, uh, before Doug Insole's death. Um, so we had a, a, I had an interesting chat with him. He told me what he thought had happened. Uh, and so that was kind of, if you like, the oral evidence. Mm. The other evidence, more significantly, I think, was the fact that I, I looked at all the minutes of the committee meetings, which went on from 1965, 6 you know, through to 68, 9 to 70, uh, that whole period. Not only the, uh, the MCC committee, but the, uh, the selection committees as well, uh, and their sub uh, some of the subcommittees. And that was quite easily done. Once you accessed, once you saw, you found in the archives what the references for this for it were, and you asked the right questions to, the, the, to Robert Curfee, who was responsible for the archive, he was, he was happy to let me look at them. And they, what they did was they fundamentally shifted perspectives in that they gave, a, they gave a sort of real understanding of where the MCC were coming from during this period, why they were acting the way they were at particular times, and how we ended up with the situation we ended up with. And that was, for me, that was, was pretty fascinating. Of course, there, there are minutes of meetings. And in fact, they're not really minutes. They're summary records, I think, would be a better description of them. But they're described as minutes. It's a traduction of, uh, yeah. inducement of secretaries of organisations, Rich. I'm afraid it is. I've been there defending, too, Jeff. Yeah. Defending my fellow secretaries. <laughs> However, not even you might traduce the minutes of the actual selection meeting that we, where Donavira was not selected, which is a six-hour meeting to a page. Uh, but that's what it was. Uh, so that information is available, it's publicly available, uh, and uh, it's, it's there. What appears to have happened was there have been so many rumours and myths and stuff around Dolivera that nobody just went back to the sources, or if they did, they had a bad day and they couldn't find what they were looking for or whatever. So that's, that's made the major, I think that's made the major difference. It's put it in context and it's allowed me to read between the lines, and of course mm. there's got to be some reading between the lines, you know, I'm a historian, that's what we do. And uh, so there's some reading between the lines, but to come out with a, essentially what I hope is the closest we're going to get to a, a coherent, well, maybe coherence too strong, but an, an exposition, <laughs> an exposition of how we got from what, you know, where we were in 1966 through to the end of 1968. Well, that's great. Um, I missed a few questions out, so there's quite, quite a few gaps. <laughs>